It is now time to experience the buzz. A podcast that takes an inside look at amazing people doing amazing things. Get ready for some great conversation that will be fascinating, educational, and inspiring. We will also leave room to help small businesses in a big way. Now, here's your host, entrepreneur Steve Buzzard. Hello, everyone. Steve Buzzard here. It is Experience the Buzz, and we are back with another episode. So glad you can join us. Today, we are speaking with Deirdre Fitzpatrick. She is the morning news anchor at Channel 3, and she has been doing it since 1997. She comes from Des Moines, Iowa. She went to the University of Missouri, and her journey, she shares it all with us today. More on Deirdre in just a moment. It's now time for What's the Buzz? Well, We are so excited because, again, we are inching closer to episode number 100. We're at 97, and I was just thinking back to all the tremendous guests that we have had. Man, we've had some good ones. I invite you to go back into the catalog of these podcasts and check out these interviews. Now, what is the plan going forward? I've been thinking about that. We've been adding installments. We've been having the Banter Bros on on occasion. Heavy Metal Thunder, you'll get another installment of that today. Van Halen's 5150. Very excited to talk about that great album. But beyond 100, we also want to add in kind of expanding our horizons. So looking at our guests, obviously, we want to keep it within Sacramento, but we may go beyond it and just share people that have great stories to tell. That's what the podcast world is all about, is being able to share those stories. And then, of course, we talked about maybe a live episode coming up in episode 100, and we want you to stay tuned for that. We hope to make that a reality as well. All in all, I hope you're just enjoying the program. It's been a lot of fun. Want to keep the journey going. And uh, we promise you some great guests and some great episodes in the future. On that note, if you would like to become a sponsor, this podcast highlights small business owners and entrepreneurs. So if you have something you would like to promote, got some great packages together, you can go to buzzerball.com and just click on the sponsor button. And from there, you'll see everything that we have. Everything, this is the most important part, is customizable. So when you hear from the small business owners that I talk about today, I reach out to them and say, hey, what is it that you want me to say about your business? And then that's where I deliver. And I would love to do that for you. All right. So that is what's the buzz. And now it's time to get to our conversation. It is Deirdre Fitzpatrick. Again, morning news anchor at KCRA Channel 3. And today I learned I thought I met her at California International Marathon Expo. Well, she shares with me it was not that. It was something else having to do with a kid birthday. It's all part of today's conversation right here on ETV. Enjoy. Welcome in, everybody. It is Experience the Buzz, and we are proud to have with us Deirdre Fitzpatrick. That's right. Morning news anchor at KCRA Channel 3. Deirdre, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm so glad to finally be with you because in TV, I always have this interview every once in a while. Like every couple of months, you have this interview that you have set up, and then something happens, either breaking news, and you have to cancel on the person, or you know, in the last couple of years, they get COVID, or you know, whatever. And I always call it the doom interview, because you're like, this is never, ever going to happen, and you feel bad. And I was that interview for you. Yeah. And I, I, I've never been that interview for somebody. So I just felt so bad. And then I thought, he's never going to ask me again. And then you did. And I, I'm really grateful 
And, you know, it just sometimes I guess that's just how it goes. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? It was important to me for this very reason is actually you are part of the reason that I started a podcast. And that so I. That me yeah. away. I'm telling you, and it was our conversation two years ago, I believe, at the California International Marathon, where you were on the panel and uh, hosting, and I was there as kind of the MC and stuff. And we just started talking, and you you mentioned that you were doing the podcast, and actually you were doing a podcast there on the CIM, yeah. so you had some guests on. And I don't know, it just it just struck me, and I'm just like, man, I think this is something I want to do. So I got to give you credit. This is my public acknowledgement of saying thank you because, man, this journey has been a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. I mean, it's a lot of work too. It looks mm -hmm. like it's super easy, and certain parts of it are. In fact, the conversation is the easy part. Yeah. That's not a problem at all. And it's all the little things that come with it. Which part do you dislike the most? Well, I think it's the technical side. So like, I okay. was very excited to have you on board and what we have to go through. We had to go through pushing special <laughs> buttons just to make sure <laughs> yeah. everything worked out. And I will say this is uh, number 97, 97th episode. Um, I've only had two disasters. One disaster though, and I've got to give him credit, Grant Napier, who was uh, I was interviewing from Florida, we had to do like four or five different takes. And I felt really? horrible. Yeah. And he would, because it, it was cutting out and I think there was a thunderstorm in Florida. So the internet wasn't good. And you know what? He was gracious. He was like, you know what? No, we're going to get this done. And so like, just even within that moment, I'm saying, you know, things will go wrong, but as long as you can just get to the interview. Yeah. The technical side, you can throw that out the window for me. That's why I have a producer. I'm actually doing this interview without the producer, Michael Kenobi. So, uh, yeah, it's, should, no I net. know it'll be great. No net. Well, Grant knows from his days working in smaller markets that stuff happens. But if the conversation or the story are good enough, nobody mm -hmm. cares. They, they don't true. hear the scratchy. They don't hear the dropouts. And most people I find will forgive the imperfections mm -hmm. if you acknowledge them and if the story itself is good enough. Yeah, very true. Very true. Now, everyone that knows you, Morning News Anchor, KCRA Channel 3, man, you've been doing it for 22 years. When you just hear that, what do you think? Well, I think that your math is off because I've actually been doing it for longer than that. <laughs> is my math way off? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So yeah, it'll be 25. It Sorry. Yeah. 25. Yeah. So <laughs> and it was longer than that in other places because oh, I've actually goodness. been doing, I've actually been doing TV news um, since I was 19 years old. True story. Wow. Because wow. I went to the University of Missouri, which has um, a really unique journalism school mm -hmm. in that it has what we would describe as much more of like a learning lab. So this, the university itself owns an NBC affiliate, owns uh, an NPR affiliate. It runs a daily newspaper, a magazine. Uh, it's got a bunch of digital stuff. It has a document. I mean, like these days it has everything. Um, right. Back in the day when I was there, that's what it had. So you actually were participating in daily newscasts um, like on a, a mini KCRA, I mean, it was a very small town, but we were the NBC affiliate for Columbia, Missouri. So at 19, I was doing Today Show cut-ins, which are those little mini news breaks that you see at 727 and 755, 827 and 855 within the Today Show, where you see the they break away to the local for a little mini newscast, yes. three minutes long. I was doing that at 19. Um, and all these years later, I'm still doing those. <laughs> Basically the same thing saying the Today Show is coming up next. So, wow. 
Yeah, hopefully I'm a little bit better, but um, well, of course, but basically seasoned, the job itself has not changed much. I was going to say the seasoned veteran, and so it's interesting <laughs> to say the University of Missouri because I remember that being one of those universities like that was on the map of when I got into broadcasting. I remember it was USC, yep. uh, Missouri, and Syracuse. Those were like oh, in mm-hmm. Northwestern, I think you could throw in there as well. But those were the ones I looked at, and just because I wanted to stay on the West Coast. I ended up going to USC, but you know what? They didn't really have in place like what you're talking about. That kind of came later. I graduated in 1993, and at the time, they had the Daily Trojan, they had KSCR, and then you would try to get internships at either, like for me, I worked for the Los Angeles Lakers, and I worked for one of the, the TV stations there. But all that other stuff that you're talking about where you could be in it and you could host and do things that didn't come till later. So it's good that you got that because you're right. That's the training ground that you needed if you were going to break into this business. Yeah, you got a lot of good practical experience. Now, remind me, I think I'm going to get this right. You were at USC with Kira, Kira Phillips. Yes. Yes. And Julie Chen, and then probably Anita Vogel as well, right? Yes, yes. Anita yeah, Vogel they as were well. like. Yep. So people might recognize Anita Vogel's name because Anita worked at KCRA in the early 2000s and then mm-hmm. went on to work for Fox News and still does, actually. She still works for them on a freelance basis, um, anchoring out of New York now and then. But those three were college roommates, as yep. the story goes. <laughs> and all three of them ended up being these like huge big names in journalism. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It was quite a class you were in. It was. It was a great class. And that broadcasting class, I remember it took me until my sophomore year to get in uh, because I I didn't do so well in the SAT. And that was one of the requirements to get in. And it's interesting because at USC, they had like this kind of this this offloaded major that was called sports journalism, but they weren't known as the true broadcaster. So I did a little of both, but yeah, I had all three of those ladies that you mentioned uh, in a lot of my classes. So yeah, it was pretty cool. I can't think of anything less applicable to being a journalist than the SAT, honestly. I know. I know. It just, yeah, it, it didn't make sense. And I had to take it literally probably about three or four times. And that was the only thing holding me back. But once I got in, yeah. Boom. It was a lot of fun, but I, I love my work, you know, you know, working newspaper and working radio and stuff. And so it's just interesting that you've been doing it since you were 19. And so just, yeah, take us through that journey of, you know, after college, like kind of your road to Sacramento. So yeah, I've been doing this since I was 19, but I have wanted to do this and verbalize that I wanted to do this since I was about four or five. Wow. I was that young when I announced to anyone who would listen um, that that's what I was going to do. So I lived in New York City when I was young and we lived in this one bedroom apartment in New York City and my father would come home from the office at around 5.30 or so. And I was a huge Mr. Rogers fan as were many kids at the time because this is pre like, you know, cable and 700 channels and Netflix. There was nothing else on at that hour that was, you know, appropriate for kids. So I would be watching Mr. Rogers as he walked in and right at 5.30, he would walk in. He hated Mr. Rogers. And, and he would change the channel second, you know, Mr. Rogers did the little wave and he would change it to Walter Cronkite and the news. And so my way of spending time with my father was to sit with him watching the news. So I would sit on the floor next to him. And as the opening credits for the news were coming on and Walter Cronkite was announcing what the big stories were of the day, um, I would get, you know, sent over to the kitchen where my mother was very dutifully mixing a Manhattan. And if I could carry the Manhattan, this is so inappropriate for today's time, but if I could carry <laughs> carry the Manhattan without spilling any, mm-hmm. when I got to my father, he would give it one more stir of the swizzle stick. 
take the swizzle stick out and I was allowed to lick the stick. Again, wildly inappropriate for today's times. But that was my introduction to news, um, was a Manhattan. <laughs> and Walter Cronkite. But I would sit with him and I would watch the news for 30 minutes. And that was how I spent time with him because I had two younger siblings in a one bedroom apartment and, you know, time, quiet time with a parent was rare. And so I would sit and watch with him and he would explain to me what I was watching. And news was very different back then, much more contextual for what was happening. But I, that was, that was my, my entree into watching the news. And then my mother always, always had news talk radio on still to this day. She's 84 years old. She still has news talk radio on all day long. So I was constantly surrounded by news, whether it was the newspaper coming in in the morning or the television with my, my father or my mother, just that constant audio of news all day long. And at five, I told him, I'm going to do that. And he was like, yeah, that's great. Tell mom I want a second Manhattan tonight. But I, but I announced at that point. And from there on out, I never once entertained doing anything else. Nothing. I never had an interest in doing anything else but television news. So anything I did as a kid was constantly geared for journalism. So the school newspaper, the school yearbook, um, shadowing when I was in high school at stations, I would go to, by the time I was in high school, I was living in Fort Worth, Texas. And I would go to the NBC affiliate there, which was very close to my high school. And I would call them with these school projects and to go in and spend an evening there just watching and seeing like what was going on. And there was one night that, um, one of the anchors, Brad Wright pulled me aside and I'd been in there like three or four times over the course of a couple months. And he pulled me aside and he goes, there's no school project, is there? And I'd been totally busted. I was completely making up school projects just to get into a news station. And I thought, that's it. I'm never going to be a journalist. And I confess. I'm like, no. He's like, that's okay. But you don't have to make up a story <laughs> or a paper. He goes, just call and say you want to come in. So <laughs> that's like how desperately I really, really, really wanted to do it. Wow. Nothing else mm -hmm. came into play. Nothing. Wow. Nothing. So Nothing. let me ask you I had no, question. I had no plan B at all. No plan B. <laughs> Nothing. So, I, ha so Nothing. I have to ask you with as much journalism as there is, like you said, I wanted to be a TV news. Like you knew that. What about, because there's those different paths, TV and radio. Did radio have any like attraction to you or was it just, this is going to be a thing for me. I'm going to be on TV. No, radio is how I got my start, actually, gotcha. in doing yep. something. Because at the University of Missouri at the time, it's not how they run the program now, but at the time, you didn't actually get into the journalism school or apply to it until your junior year. And so you were doing basic classes, you know, your, your regular classes, your, your math, your science, whatever, the first two years, and then whatever other kind of extracurriculars you were going to do. So I needed to know, was this actually going to work? And so I started looking for jobs. So I, my first on air job was at an NPR affiliate, it was at the school NPR affiliate, and they would hire people to do the afternoon edition, like the, the classical music before All Things Considered came on. And so it was a chance to hear myself on a radio. I was very excited about it. So I went and auditioned for NPR. My father always had NPR and classical music on in the car. So I knew exactly what I was going for. So I had the audition sheet and I knew how to pronounce all the different um, composers' names, and I went in and I did the audition, and you know that was Rachmaninoff, and blah, blah, blah. like I completely did the mimicking of an NPR um, announcer, and I got the job. So Friday afternoons, I was the only person left in the station, and I would have two hours 
of me and a microphone and no one to stop me. And so I would go on and do that until all things considered started at six o'clock or four o'clock, whatever it was back then. And that was my first time of actually getting to be on the radio. It's also the only negative job performance review I've ever gotten in my life. Mm. In my life. They said I had far too much energy. Cause I, cause I, once, once I was reading the, the, the underlying sponsors, I was all FM. <laughs> it was all excitement and I was selling the sandwich shop and that was not what they wanted. Um, but I was very good at the pledge drive. I could get money out of anyone. I'd gone to Catholic school. I knew how to run a fund, a fund drive. Um, but I loved it and that was kind of my entree. And then I, after that, took a, an internship at a station called KMIZ, which is the ABC affiliate in Columbia, Missouri. And I worked there pretty much full-time hours, um, much to the chagrin of my grades. My grades were not that great that year. And then from that, I had an opportunity for a paying job my junior year in school at a radio station called KFRU Radio, which was a dominant news talk station around there, legendary station, but a small station that was owned by a guy named Bill Weaver. And it was an old school, small radio station, like nothing going on. And I lied my way into that job because <laughs> it was running Cardinal Baseball with the legendary Jack Buck. Mm -hmm. And so they brought me in and they needed somebody for Saturday and Sunday nights when there were baseball games on. And my job, it was to run the board. And back then nothing was automated. You were literally taking the commercials, the carts mm -hmm. and putting them into a machine and you push the button. And I had kind of a loose script of what I had to listen to when it was my time to push the commercials or to get on this. All I cared about was hearing myself to get on and do a little weather update or remind people that they were listening to Cardinal Baseball on KFRU Radio. And I said I was a big baseball fan because they said, you got to be a good baseball fan. And I'm like, absolutely. I love baseball. I did not love baseball at all. <laughs> but I did it and I got the job. And so that was my, my first entree into a paying job was working at KFRU Radio and um, playing Cardinal Baseball, which was tricky because if you remember Jack Buck, he, he loved to pause. So yes. just when I had gotten the little clue that it was time to run the spot, he would start talking again right after I'd hit the button. <laughs> so I got in a lot of trouble with our, you know, loyal Cardinal fans. But it was a wonderful, exciting place. And I ended up working there for the last two years of college. I had a full-time job and I transitioned into several things there at the station. And the people that I worked for at that time, I mean, I was 20 years old. Wow. The people I worked for at that time are still incredible mentors and friends decades later. Let's reset Deirdre Fitzpatrick, the morning news anchor at KCRA Channel 3. We are talking about her journey because that's what this podcast is all about. Highlighting the people that are here in Sacramento that you know and love, but maybe you just don't know the full background. Well, we are getting that today. And before we get into your first TV job, because it's interesting, I've had Kelly DeMarco, I've had Christina Mendonca, and I always like like talking about that first TV job that you got. So you did it in radio, but then you made that transition to TV. What was your first job? What was that first uh, city that you were going to be going to and working on TV? So I had the, the two years of radio experience and working mm -hmm. at two different TV stations in Columbia, Missouri. Um, but I knew when I graduated, I needed, I needed like a full-time job. So the way it worked back then was you created a tape and it was your resume tape. So it would have three TV stories and a little montage of anchoring. So it was maybe like 12 minutes worth of work. And it was on, I'm trying to think, probably a v I guess VHS or beta tape at the time. Beta. And you, oh, yes. you would you would go into the TV station in the dark of night when no manager would be there. Mm -hmm. And you would just keep making copies of this tape. And you literally, it was 
there was no like drag and drop. It was physically having to make these tapes. And then you would put them into a priority mail envelope and you would mail them out to TV stations around the country. So at the time, the the network of contacts I had coming out of the University of Missouri is pretty deep. We call ourselves the Missouri Mafia. And so the um, unofficial rule of the fight club that is Missouri Mafia is that if a Mizzou grad calls you at a station and says, will you walk a tape in to the boss or can you tell me about a job, you help. No questions asked. You You help and you facilitate. And that's the beauty of going to that school. So I had contacts all over the country. And so I got into my head that I wanted to work on the East Coast, specifically North Carolina. And so I took, I literally took a a trip out there and um, I flew into North Carolina. I rented a car and I drove to every single station in North Carolina and South Carolina. Unfortunately, the week I was there, there was a hurricane, which meant that nobody wanted to talk to me because they were dealing with a hurricane. So (laughs) I saw as many people as I could. And then I got back um, and some jobs were starting to come in, but I just wasn't like feeling anything. Nothing was coming in that I'd like desperately wanted. And so I, at the time it said, I'll go almost anywhere except for Iowa. I did not want to go to Iowa cause I was living in Missouri and I just, I wanted to get out of the Midwest. Um, and then I got a call from a guy named Dave Buzik in Iowa at KCCI in Des Moines, which is the CBS affiliate. Dave was a Missouri grad. So of course I had to take his call and I had a mentor and my mentor Kent said, you need to go see him. He's, he's the kind of person I would want you to be around. I said, okay. So I drove up there. It was a couple hour drive and I went up there and he was wonderful. He was like, just, he was so like the people that I'd had an opportunity to work with in school and in my jobs, just such a quality person. And I ended up taking the job and he offered me at the time a part-time job. He had a job that was four days a week. And at the age of 21, I said, well, that's fine, but I'm going to need, <laughs> I actually asked this. I said, I'm going to need health insurance, a 401k as well. And he's like, I have a part-time job, but I was very assertive. I said, yeah, but I'm going to need those things. He goes, okay, I can get you those things. So I got there with a technical part-time job where I worked 40 hours, but only four days a week, which is how he got around it and all those other things. And within about a month or so, I was offered a full-time, a full-time job, which basically meant I had all the same things and I worked five days a week. <laughs> so nice. That was nice. my first like paid TV job. So I was a reporter. And after about two months, I was made a weekend anchor in at the time what was Market 69. So it was very, very unusual for someone with my level of experience back then to have been given um, or offered such a big opportunity. I hope anyone, especially someone who may be looking into going into this business, and it's much different now than what mm-hmm. like what you're talking oh, about. Wildly no different. Doubt, no doubt. But there is something there that can translate from what you went through to the modern day, and that is the grind and the determination yeah. and the perseverance and the persistence. And yeah, you had to fib a little bit, but it's like, you know what? You, you had to make it work. And so maybe speak to that because that is an art that is not lost. Well, I lacked many things, but confidence was not one of them mm-hmm. back then. Um, and so what I wasn't was an expert at things. So when I got the job with Car- <laughs> playing the Cardinal baseball, do you know baseball really well? Well, okay, I've listened to baseball. I've been to baseball games. I'm a quick learner. I know baseball. That's how go. I looked at it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I don't think you should fib about your qualifications. 
um, in terms of like, if you literally have no experience, absolutely not. If you are a quick learner, there's always a way probably to present the skills you do have and what you're willing to do to get the next skills. Um, also in a very tiny market for a job, say running Cardinal baseball on a Saturday night, way back then when I was being paid probably like six bucks an hour, (laughs) they weren't looking for someone with a master's degree. They needed somebody who could push buttons correctly most of the time. Mm -hmm. And that was the truth. Yeah. But within that, yeah, you were like, you were carving your way. So things I was (laughs) persistent. Yes. Persistent with a capital P. And grateful. Yes. Really grateful. And I think that that went a long way as well. So as all this is coming together, things are going well in Des Moines. You are obviously looking beyond, okay, what's, what's next, right? And so what was next for you after Des Moines, Iowa? So about two years in, television contracts tend to work um, either two to anywhere from two to four year increments. Mm -hmm. So after about two, three years, I had no intention of staying in the Midwest. And by that point, I'd been there for, you know, seven years, I was ready to see other places. And at the time, my goal was to work on something like a news magazine, because things like Dateline and 48 Hours were really kind of new then, and they were super exciting. So I really wanted to do more of like long form storytelling, um, reporting, and a lot of travel. And so I was thinking like bigger things. So I start, what happens is you start getting calls, you start getting offers, you have people who, you know, kind of keep track of you. So I had a couple things start coming my way. Um, and back then, you know, like literally you'd get the phone call at your desk in the newsroom. So you'd like try to like carefully take it so you could call them back later. But, you know, I had a couple things come my way. So I could have gone a couple directions. So one call I got was from somebody who was scouting for a show that was going to feature a panel of women. And they were scouting for the young person who would have opinions on this panel. And it sounded really weird, but they were putting together like, you know, eight to 10 women about my age with my experience. They wanted somebody with news and the way they described it, I just was like, I don't hear the journalism here. And I was very serious about my craft back then. And so I politely said, I'm sorry, but, um, appreciate that you've reached out to me, but I just, this, I, I'm a serious journalist and I just don't think that this is the right thing for me. That show became the view. Um, I was wrong. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. So I, I was I'm all, is this Ma- the view? <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> Debbie Matinopoulos ended up getting that job. Oh um, my yeah. gosh. So, I know. Isn't wow. that funny? So that wow. was one of the ones that kind of was out there. Okay. But, I, but in my mind, like back then, if you did something like that, you yep. would never have been considered in news Abs- after that. Absolutely. Or at least that's the way our brains mm-hmm. thought about it. So yeah. that was one of those shows. Another show that came up around that time that I also thought I was you know, too serious for was called American journal. That was a great show. And a friend of mine actually did Mm -hmm. take that job. And that was a show that told stories across the country. That would have been probably a really fun job too. Um, but there were other things that were happening in television news at the time. And one of the things that was happening was the way that we told stories was changing. Mm -hmm. So live television, which we'd had for a long time, the way we did live was changing. So it was the dawn of like really starting to see reporters, getting aerobic, the patting your head and rubbing your tummy kind of thing. So it's the, it's called the walk and talk behind the scenes in television news, but it's taking the, taking the audience 
on a little bit of a journey physically in the live shot. So for example, we had a lot of in the Midwest tornadoes and I did some tornado coverage one night and stupidly basically drove into the eye of the tornado somehow did not die. And then was on live 10 minutes later. And I did like a 15 minute straight live shot, just me and a newscast walking through this house that had just been obliterated with the farmer who owned it. And this, this, Live shot. I'd love to see it again. It was super compelling, apparently. And the next day, it had been carried on satellites around the country. And that was the way a lot of other stations would see people. And the next day, I got so many phone calls from stations. Mm. I got the biggest one I got was from, I think it was WBBM TV in Chicago, legendary station. And it was a news director basically offering me a job on the spot. And at this time, I mean, I'm still really young. And Um, I knew because what he wanted was he wanted somebody to come in and blow up the reporting staff and show them this is the way we want to do things. And while it would have been a big opportunity, I knew that that staff would blow me up after that. And I knew that I probably, I wasn't ready for it. So I had enough sense of self at that point to know that job would have been a disaster for me. Um, and I wouldn't have made very much money in a very expensive city. So I kind of politely declined and started really trying to think a little bit more seriously, like where should I go to develop these other skills? And the station that I settled on was KUSA in Denver. So I really, really wanted to work in Denver. And so what I would do is on my days off in Des Moines, which were like Thursday, Friday or something, or Tuesday, Wednesday, I would drive to Colorado on the regular just for like 24 hours. I would drive all night long. I would get to Denver and then I would look up my Mizzou contacts and I would stop in at these stations because Denver TV was the best TV in the country. They told the best stories, had the best photographers, they did the best work. And I really, really, really wanted to work there. So um, that's what I did. And I just kept trying to get a job. The problem was that like short of a big bus accident, taking out a staff, I was never going to get that job because people didn't leave those jobs at the time. So there was a consulting company called Magid, which still exists, and Magid would help you find a job. So Magid would get hired by stations to find talent, which is what they call the people on TV, which I always think it sounds terrible, very <laughs> strange sounding. But they would look for reporters and anchors. Mm-hmm. And so there was a guy there, um, John Corderer, who had taken a liking to me, another Mizzou person. And he started like putting me up for different jobs. And I turned down like three jobs in a row, like in Las Vegas. And, and I thought he had given up on me. I really did. And so, um, he finally calls me again and I get the call one night. It was like six. I remember it was six o'clock on like a Wednesday and I answered the phone and I had this call with him and he said, I'm in, I'm in a news director's office in Sacramento, California. And I think this is your next job. I'm like, where is Sacramento, California? And so I took my, I took my Thomas guide, which was next to the phone. And if you don't know what a Thomas guide is, Google it. But basically it was a big map, big map book. And I started looking, you know, I flipped to like the, the California page and I see where Sacramento is. And I remember Sacramento was on eight is enough. So I got that so far. (laughs) And I saw, I saw Lake Tahoe and I saw San Francisco. I saw mountains and I never lived anywhere with mountains. And I thought, well, that's a good free trip. I'll take it. (laughs) So I flew out for an interview in Sacramento. And that was how the original Sacramento job happened. And so I came out for the interview 
I'm sorry. I feel like I'm monopolizing your podcast. Tell me when you want me to stop. I had a lot uh, of The spotlight's today. on you, Deirdre. Keep okay. going. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the name of the show is yours, though. Okay. So I get to Sacramento and I do the interview. And it's it was beginning of December and it is a total downpour. And the story that actually caught the attention of the news director in Sacramento was the McCoy septuplets. Do you remember them? I do. The, yes. I, the Iowa family that had like yes. seven babies. They were born in November. They were all over my fresh resume tape. God love those kids. And that was the story that had caught his, his attention because it was a big national story. So anyway, I find myself out there um, in December, big downpour, and I see all the trees driving in. I'm like, this is a pretty place. Even though it's downpour raining, I'm like, this is a really pretty place. And I'm, I'm, I liked it. Like everybody was really nice. And the news director, Ed Chapu, was just this awesome guy. And um, I, I really enjoyed it while I was there. And I, they were bringing me out for a weekend morning anchor job. And fun fact, I never actually auditioned for the job. Typically, an anchor comes in and you go in and you go into the studio and you you host something, you host a little demo and you work with different people and they see how you interact and they see how you interact with people behind the scenes. I never actually auditioned for it because at the time, what I did not know was the Kelly family, which owned KCRA back then, was already making plans to sell the station. And so they had stopped buying programming and mass. And so on Saturday and Sunday mornings, the show I was going to be doing, there was no more paid programming. Instead, they were doing five hours of news. Um, I did not know that when I took the job. And I ended up taking the job and it was like five hours of news by myself, <laughs> which was crazy, <laughs> crazy. So I did take, I got offered the job before I even left the station I accepted the job verbally and made plans to, you know, go back to Sac go back to Des Moines. And the very next morning I got called with an offer for a job in Denver. <laughs> oh. Uh -huh. And oh, I man. had to turn it down because I had verbally given my word in Sacramento. Again, something that nobody would probably ever do now, but my word was everything. And I, I didn't yeah. want to go back on the verbal yes. Yeah. And it's part of your journey. And I, I just, I love the fact, well, first of all, we are very glad that you settled in Sacramento. I think a lot of people would applaud that here in the capital city. And obviously you've loved it enough that you're still here. So, you know, your journey, it was meant to be, right? It was just meant to be. Yeah. And I'm sure as you look back, you're like, yeah, could have done this, could have done this. But I think I'm settling on the fact that you got to a spot where you basically could choose where you wanted to go. Mm -hmm. I remember my broadcasting career, like I worked in Sacramento and stuff, and I only have one moment. I wanted to be a play-by-play -play broadcaster. I got that moment. Minnesota Lynx reached out. Steve, we want you to be our play-by-play. -play. Just in that moment of hearing that, of someone wanting me, it was like, that's cool. And like you were getting it all over the place from every corner. So it must have been nice to say, hey, Everything that I've done has paid off, and now I can really select where I want to go. Yeah, but it's a little bit of a leap of faith as True. well. Yep. Um, and if I'm to be honest, um, which I have no reason not to be, <laughs> I, wasn't, I was not happy when I got here at all. Okay. I really wasn't. Um, yeah. I like a lot of jobs. What I thought I was coming into wasn't really what I came into. And 
I was by far the youngest person in the newsroom. So there were a lot of very experienced veterans who, as I look back at this now with adult eyes, which I did not have when I first was on air at KCRA, I look back and I realized that a lot of the people who maybe um, had a lot going on at the station, they probably were already figuring out this whole Kelly thing and, and the station ownership changing. And I'm sure being more experienced, they were wondering how that was going to impact them. And so it was the first, the first year um, while I loved the city and I loved getting out, and I loved all the outdoor recreation stuff. The job itself was tough. It was very tough. And anchoring five hours of news with the level of experience I had back then was very, very hard. In fact, the first couple of months, because it was so overwhelming, I started stuttering. I had never stuttered mm. before. And I would trip over some news new scripts. And that was embarrassing. And it was frustrating. And, you know, five hours, there's no time to really rebound. So we were using paper scripts back then. So I would take them all home to the place I was renting. And as soon as I would get home after my day of anchoring the Saturday morning news and reporting, I would go through those scripts for another couple of hours until I could do them all straight, yeah. clean. So that was the level of work I was putting in on the outside as well, um, to be able to hang with the people who are far more experienced and polished than I was. I felt, I felt the eyeballs on me, lots of support too. I worked with amazing people back then, but I felt a lot of pressure that I put well, on myself and, and give context for people so that they understand is that, you know, each city is ranked as far as, you know, it is with news. Maybe you can describe, you know, where was sure. Des Moines in the rankings? You know, you mentioned North Carolina, uh, Denver, which is a big one, Sacramento. So that, that'll kind of help give people context. Sure. So you hear about market size and yeah. market size uh, basically is based off of population and the number of people with eyeballs on a TV. Um, so, you know, no surprise, New York, LA are your top station, Chicago's in your top 10, San Francisco. Um, where I started in Columbia, Missouri, our NBC affiliated at the university was market 151 at the time. Mm -hmm. Des Moines was market 69 and Sacramento has hung in at 20. So anything in a top 20 market is pretty big. Mm -hmm. And these days, there's not a whole lot of difference between market 20 and market one in terms of how we um, make the sausage, so to yeah, speak. There really right. isn't. And in fact, there's a lot of disparity between stations within a market in terms of resources and how they work and the way they're set up. So um, KCRA has a reputation for being kind of a, a destination station, which mm -hmm. typically means it's in a nice place to live. It's solid. It has the most people watching. It has the most respect. It has the most tradition. It's as solid as it gets. And because of it, it's a place that a lot of people would want to work. And there are a handful of stations like that around the country. Well, folks, a great opening segment. We're going to dip away for a little break, take care of our sponsors who are part of this program. And when we come back, we're going to find out from Deirdre that transition from weekend to where she is now and has been doing it so well. Yes, my math was off. We're 25 <laughs> years in running, but we're also going to talk about running. That's right. She is a big runner. And then we've got to mention the podcast, Dying to Ask podcast. And then uh, we'll finish things out in our second and final segment. So don't go anywhere. More to come here on Experience the Buzz.
All right, first segment in the books. Wow, great conversation. What you saying? Guess what? It only gets better. We continue on with Deirdre Fitzpatrick, but right now we want to thank our sponsors, including R5 Stitch and Print, Pit Boss Jerky, along with Little Whale Swim School, and Matt the Mortgage Guy. Speaking of Matt the Mortgage Guy, he's got a podcast, and I'm actually a guest on his podcast. It's coming out pretty soon. We'll let you know when that happens, but it's called Get Better Every Day. So I want to start there and say, hey, check it out. Another great podcast where he interviews a lot of people, kind of talking about what it is that myself or others do to get better every day. So I appreciate Matt and what he's doing. This guy's expanded, but his expertise is in home loans, refinancing. And so if you've got that kind of in your wheelhouse right now, mtmg.com is the place to go, or you can call them at 916-802-9291. Also be sure to check out Matt on YouTube. He's got his own YouTube channel. Uh, This guy's got over a million viewers. He's got over 500 videos. And basically he's just educating people on everything that I just talked about, you know, loans and refinancing and any education in that department. Little Whale Swim School. They are the premier swim school right here in Sacramento, located at 4106 El Camino Avenue. You can find them at littlewhaleswim.com. Anya Hall is the owner, and they do such a good job. In fact, their motto is, it's always summer at Little Whale. And I know we're coming out of it, but the beautiful thing about Little Whale is they are year-round, and they have beautiful facilities. Check them out at littlewhaleswim.com. Pit Boss Jerky, beef jerky made by the man, Joe Green. 13 amazing flavors. The latest flavor white bulls barbecue we've got named one one named after the show called experience the buzz raspberry apple chipotle island teriyaki i just named eight or excuse me i only named four right there that means there's nine others that you can get a hold of and how do you do that you call 916-769-6807 and get on the order board uh you will start seeing pit boss jerky at local amy hardwares we'll let you know when that happens and finally r5 stitch and print good friend troy rousey specializing in screen printing and embroidery they got an in-house graphic design artists that can help you with your needs you can find them at r5print.com or 916-454-3773 Those are our four sponsors. We're proud to have them on board here at Experience Buzz. Buzz, now let's get back to my conversation with Deirdre Fitzpatrick. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss an episode of Experience the Buzz by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. It means everything. Now, back to the show. And welcome back to Experience the Buzz. Glad you could be with us. So happy to be with Deirdre Fitzpatrick of KCRA Channel 3. Also, Dying to Ask is the podcast. She's an avid runner, and she is the inspiration for why Experience the Buzz existed. That's right. Two years ago, had a conversation about it and really just kind of lit that fire for me. Someone who had broadcasted himself for you know 14 years and stuff and then stepped away went into education kind of my entrepreneur world but always had that love for broadcasting so i was trying to find a way to get back into it and the podcast route was definitely it and i know we've spoke already on it but man i do love the podcast format especially with being able to have the freedom of saying okay what is it that you want to talk about and then for me being able to have these conversations that I know in real life, I wouldn't be able to have. But I've got a format where I get to find out who is Deirdre Fitzpatrick amongst many others who have been on the program. So it's very, I guess, very, very rewarding in its own way. 
Well, I hope it's not like scary because that also no. can get. <laughs> I mean, this true. thing could go sideways very, very quickly. Very yeah, that's true. Like the, the really great thing I think about podcasting, and um, and I'm sure that this is probably how you see it too, is that you get to have these extended conversations, and they're far more casual. And so, to me, they're very similar to when you do a long TV interview. Even somebody who's really comfortable on camera has a certain formality to them. The really great stuff happens once you stop recording. And you're always like, oh, that would have been so good. And that's really what the podcast is, is it's all that because people feel a little bit more comfortable. And now most podcasts do have a video component to it, which is kind of ironic when you think about it. But um, they're, they're just fun. It's a great way to learn. It's a great way to pass time. It's a great way to be entertained. It's just, just really great. It take, pulls all those experiences and education that you and I have from all those years ago and kind of pulls it into one place. And it's just, it's good. Totally agree. Totally agree. So let's get back to KCRA because weekend, anchor, five hours, you're gr- you're still grinding, right? And then the transition happens. So take me through because your routine for what you do now, I just want to bless you in all ways. I don't know how you do it, <laughs> but you do it. You're the morning news anchor. You've got a crazy routine that we would love to hear about. But what was the t- what happened in that transition from weekend to now weekday morning anchor? So when I took on the weekend job, we had a four hour morning show and two anchor teams. And inevitably there was always somebody either on vacation or calling out sick or something on that team. So I started backfilling for the weekday mornings pretty quickly and I did well, you know, I mean, I was working with Walt Gray, which was a heck of a lot of fun and a total education. And I, I did well, but it was not a job I wanted. In fact, I was very clear that I did not want the job. What I was pretty sure I wanted to do in my next job after that was go that news magazine route that I had mentioned before or have a job that would let me travel or, you know, I wanted some adventure. I was young and I wanted to do something different. And I had zero intention of staying in Sacramento. Zero. Like I would have lost that bet if I had made it. So people started leaving the job. The weekend morning anchors, um, one after another left. So... And for a variety of reasons. And so the job came up three times with multiple people. And I was offered the job three times. And I turned it down three times. I was so clear. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no interest. So I turned the job down three times. And uh, we had a, by this time, KCRA had been purchased by Hearst Television. And we had a vice president of news, a guy named Fred Young, who came into town. And he was this um, kind of imposing person in terms of a very strong personality and very old school kind of demeanor to him. And because I was not staying, I didn't really care. So I was not terribly deferential in terms of yes, sir, no, sir. But I mean, I was polite and professional, but I wasn't like, you know, trying to get somebody else's job. I had no interest. And so I got summoned to a meeting with him and I go into this conference room. It's just him. And I sit down and he goes, so I hear you have turned down the weekend, weekday morning anchor job three, on three different occasions. As you know, it's open now. I said, yes, sir. And uh, he said, well, why won't you take this job? And I said, because it's <laughs> because nobody watches mornings. It's a dead end and I'm not sticking around this place. And I basically <laughs> said that to him. 
And I think he was intrigued. And he said, well, why do you say that? And I told him my reasons for it. Because, you know, we didn't have at the time, we didn't put the most experienced people on our mornings. They were on our nights. Nights were, you know, the shiny thing. And that's what everybody aspired to, except for me. And I explained it. And he said, well, I'm going to tell you right now that things are changing. And morning news is about to become extremely important. And it's going to become important and a dominant show first on the West Coast because people are getting up earlier because people's commutes were getting longer. And so lifestyles were changing. And he said, and you are the perfect person to, to lead that change. And I politely told him he was very wrong. And he said, um, what is it that you're afraid would happen if you took this job? And I said, I'm afraid like I would pretty much shrivel up and die because I won't have opportunity. I'm not going to get to go do the big stories and the breaking news. And, you know, I was one of the, I was a total utility player. You could throw me into anything and I loved it. And I loved breaking news and I loved going out and I loved traveling and all the rest of it. And he said, well, what if I could promise you that you would still have these big opportunities if you helped lead this show? I said, huh? And he said, well, we're getting ready to start this new project, an Olympic project. And we're putting together a team of our best people. And we are going to send this team of our best people, resourceful people, to Sydney, Australia. And you will lead coverage for all of our stations. And you will do what we're going to call group coverage. So basically, their concept was, we're going to do what the networks do, which is where you send a couple of correspondents. And they do stories and live shots for all of the stations we're going to do it for ourselves. We're going to be our own little mini network. What if you had opportunities like that? Well, now I was interested. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to take a chance. And at the time I was just learning to ski and I was getting decent. I thought, well, I could also become a good skier. <laughs> <laughs> this is what was going through my head at the time. <laughs> and so after listening to him, I, I trusted him and I liked him. And it was a very frank conversation between two different people at very polar ends of their careers. And I looked at him and I said, okay. And he said, okay, what? I said, okay, I'll take it. I'll do it. Wow. And like, I walked out and I remember him yelling at the news director, she's going to do it. <laughs> and that was how... That's how I became the weekday morning anchor. And so wow. within, within a, a, like literally a week, I was into that job and I was sitting alongside Walt Gray, who I would sit next to for the next 10 plus years. I'm not even sure how long we were partners. And, and that was when morning news started to explode. And I learned all of my best habits and several of my worst from sitting next to Walt Gray. <laughs> and that's how I ended up in the job. Who, by the way, I definitely, I've tried to reach out to get to on this program because he is a character. Is that, he, it? I mean, that's probably an understatement, right? Yeah, I wouldn't even say character. I would say Walt is um, one of the smartest people I've ever known. Walt is one of the most loyal, passionate, intelligent, um, funniest people I've ever known. And so quick thinking. Um, he lives hard, he loves hard and he works hard and he is just a great salt of the earth person. He's very much a big brother type to me and we had fun and That's what great. was so is, is so quick witted that sitting next to him on an anchor desk <laughs> prepared me for battle, like battle. And it, it also taught me the importance of being prepared and knowing stuff at all times. 
Um, and that was a, a really great experience. And we had a lot of fun. Anybody who says like, was it really that much fun? Yeah, it was really that much fun. <laughs> so it's interesting that you mentioned the Olympics because that, that was going to be my bridge is like, that's, that's what you're known for outside of being the morning news anchor, which is a constant mm -hmm. And you've done, is it 10 now? You've done 10 Olympics? So I've done 10 in person and then I've covered tw 12. Yeah. And so okay. I, between 2000 and 2018, my partner, Mike Domalog, photographer at KCRA, we were a reporter photographer team. And so we were part of the go team for his television. So each Olympics, we would six months out, start gathering stories and we would create a lot of content for Hearst television. And then during the month of the Olympics, we would go in front it. So our Olympic team was typically anywhere from eight to nine people, three on air, three photographers, a manager to lead it, a producer, and then one other person. So either an engineer or a second producer. And so this tiny group of us would go for a month and literally nobody ever believes me until they actually see it up close. You work 20 hours a day, seven days a week, straight. And sometimes you work longer than 20 hours. And that's how we do it. And so we have at Hearst Television, we have nearly 30 television stations. So the live, we have a live reporter, we rotate, you know, who does what each day. But if you were the live reporter that day, you're responsible for turning a couple of stories and then doing live shots from coast to coast. And that's a six to seven hour span where you're literally standing in front of a camera. And every couple of minutes, you basically dial into a different TV station across the country. You have a whiteboard that has the name of the station, the names of the anchors, and in your ear, they just keep changing between these stations. And I would do on those days anywhere from 50 to 60 live shots in a row. Okay. See, this is pulling back the curtain because I don't think yeah, people know yeah. this. Right. They mm -hmm. think you just did it for channel three. No. Oh man, that's gotta be easy. You know, a fun job. No. Wow. What a grind. No, but let I, me ask it was you, actually what, for stations across the country. But was that an adrenaline rush for you? Did that meet something that you're like, okay, th I like this because you kept talking about being in that anchor spot where, mm -hmm. man, I'm going to rot away. You know, I need something. Was the Olympics the representation of that? The Olympics is an incredible opportunity because it's hard. And the people that you work with at the Olympics in the, the NBC press pool are the best at what they do for the most mm -hmm. part. You get a couple who are not. Um, but for the most part, they're the best, most even going utility players that a station has because you can't send diva type people to a job where you need the hands on deck to do things. So everybody has to do more than they probably do at home. And so because of it, it's a little bit like going to summer camp with all your fun friends and you like everybody who's in the bunkhouse. That's what it's like. And it's got a little bit of that kind of mentality and it's exciting and it's fun. And it's for the most part, pretty positive. And it's just this really unique experience. It's a little bit like, you know, Peter Pan and Neverland. You're like, oh my gosh, what's next? It's just a blast. And the stuff you're seeing and the people you meet behind the scenes and the families and the athletes and the, it's just really, really fun. It's fun trying to pull it off. It's, it's nonstop adrenaline. And then Six hours of trying to make it seem like whatever live shot is on television at that time is the only thing you're doing that day. Yeah. And that you're so plugged into those people in those communities that they don't know that you don't live there. 
because you have invested and I do invest. I find out who are these anchors and I learn a little, I read their bios and I know a little bit about them and I know something about the cities that they're broadcasting from. And over the years, you develop these relationships, not only with them, but also with their viewers and their stations. And I found that I really, really enjoyed it. I really, it was, it was hard. It is hard, but I do enjoy pulling it off big time. That is fascinating. Like I didn't And I love that. the people that I was working with. I, yeah. I love the people that I work with because you're, you're working so one-on-one with them, um, become like family to you. You get to know each other very quickly. And so I just really found it super, super satisfying. So Deirdre, so many moments from the Olympics, and I'm putting you on the spot here, but if you, like, if one came to mind, what, what is that big one that comes to mind for you of all that you've done? Um, God, it's really hard. Um, so I've had like a couple of, of unique opportunities. So mm-hmm. one that came to mind, I actually was just thinking about this this morning because we're recording this on during the, the week of the queen was, um, I was tasked with helping Michael Phelps sister, become a reporter during the Olympics. So she did kind of like a special correspondent thing for us because we had a station in Baltimore. And so my job was to help her do her on-air segments, so kind of coach her. And the idea was that in helping her be a, like a correspondent for us that we would eventually get you know access to Michael Phelps, which for the record, we never did. But we did get to, you know, I did get to hang out with Hillary and Hillary's lovely. Um, so during the course of that, she happened to mention that her brother's friends, like longtime friends and their family were staying on a boat in London because they couldn't get a large enough accommodation for all these people. It was not a, like college guy, college friends and stuff. This is back when he was single and still partying like Michael yeah. Phelps used to party. He doesn't do any of that anymore. And so she mentioned this. I'm like, can you get me on that boat? Yeah. <laughs> She's like, yeah. She's like, probably. I'm like, can you get me on that boat? And so we showed up at this boat one afternoon and it was the Michael Phelps boat. And literally we get on this boat right there in the heart of the city. And it was packed with like 40 frat guys. It looked like a frat party. And we wandered around this boat for an hour and put together one of the best stories I've ever done. One of the best stories. It was so dumb, ridiculous. And I couldn't believe Dami and I just kept looking at each other. I'm like, remember this moment, friend, this is, this is pretty fantastic. So we get back to the, the NBC compound and you know, they feed your story up on a satellite. And so people in the room are watching the story go up and they're like, what is she doing on a boat? And then they start seeing the people who are showing up on the boat and they literally, the, where everybody's sitting at card tables, they start turning around. They're like, how did you get that? <laughs> so, that was one of the more memorable ones. And then funny, That's Steve, cool. I was in London. I was in London over spring break. And we're walking through downtown area down by the Thames. And I had this weird feeling of, I've been here before. I've been here before. I've been here before. And I look over and I see this boat. It was the boat. It was no. the same boat. Ten years, <laughs> ten years later, that boat, which apparently doesn't actually move, was still there, and you can still apparently rent it out for events. Oh, that's so the great. boat is still there if anyone wants to get it. Oh. So that was kind of one one memorable moment. I have to ask you, like this routine now that you are doing on a daily. Like we're sitting here, we're doing this interview near noontime. So I can't imagine like what time that is for you because you need to explain to everybody what your routine is as far as when you go to sleep, getting up, preparing, you know, for a TV broadcast as the morning news anchor. So 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Do, I do you don't like reckon... it? Are you okay with it? You. I mean, nobody... you have been for years, but yeah. You, you know. know what? Um, nobody likes getting up at that hour. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody likes that. Well, and you need to share um, what that hour is. Yes. Yeah, so it depends on the day. It depends on yes. what I'm needed for. If I am needed to work on the 4 a.m. news, then I'm probably up no later than 2.15, 2.30. And then I, my prep is that I actually, thank you, COVID. This is the only good thing to have come out of COVID for me is that, um, I do my, I go through my scripts and I do my prep from home now. Cause I'm mm. so good with logging in from home mm. and I can do everything that I need to, to get ready newscast wise from home in terms of getting into our rundowns and working with producers and, you know, top lining them and correcting things. Cause basically the prep part of it, um, in terms of the scripts is I'm like a glorified English teacher. Like I'm like that sixth grade teacher who used to do everything with the red pen. Yeah. I go in and I just clean things up because when you're writing dozens of scripts every day, you're going to have typos and mistakes. So I go in and I'm, I'm the extra set of eyes, but also people like my partner Taylor and I were the context. So we have enough experience. I can go, actually, that's not how the Supreme court works. And so we go in and we look for things that, you know, to make sure that we're, we're getting the scripts as good as they can possibly be. Um, and then I also just prep on news. I mean, I, I look at at least five newspapers online before I go in. I've read the New York Times. I've looked at USA Today. I've gone through our website. I've looked at the LA Times. I look at the Financial Times. I'll look at an overseas paper. So I try to have just a good basis of what actually happened overnight. And then I listen to news on my way in. I mean, I'm flipping between the radio um, programs that are on. At Odark 30. <laughs> I'm listening to those. And then when I get into the station, I pretty quickly just get myself ready to go on TV. But I also then I'm listening to Up First on NPR. It's a 10 minute podcast, which is one more way of like soaking in a little bit more information before sure. we go on. So there's a lot of prep and a lot of like pulling in as much news content as I can personally in a short period of time before I go in. Okay. Which means you're so now you're wondering like what time to go to bed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Have to know. No later. I, I aim to be in bed at eight. Okay. No later than nine, mm -hmm. but I have teenage boys and it just doesn't work like that anymore. It was, it was fabulous when they were small because I would tuck them in, tuck everybody in, feel like a good mom. And then I would go to bed. And then my husband had the TV to himself all night. Now we have teenagers and yep. now it's them coming in to tuck me in. And it just, the power thing is just, it's really <laughs> off right now. It has shifted. <laughs> it has shifted big time and COVID shifted everything and lockdown and all the rest of it. But, um, oh my you know, I, I obviously know the value of sleep and in the importance of it. So I do my best to be able to get, you know, between five and six hours, which is not a great amount, but at least I've been able to kind of keep that going for a lot yep. of years. You've done it so well for so many years. That is so very true. So let's get to the last two parts of what has been a great conversation. I really do appreciate that you've taken the time to do this and glad that we finally connected, got it inside of 100. But the podcast, how did you, was that, how did that come about? Was that Deirdre saying, I need something else? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. So when news started changing 15 years ago with like real strong influence of the web and then social media became a big component of it, we had a lot of people within the news industry who really resisted the tech part of it and didn't like it. 
Um, I was the opposite. I love tech and I love new and I love pushing boundaries and I love new learning new things because at the heart of it, I'm still doing the job that I was doing at 19. I am still doing today's show cadence, right? So I need something different. And because I have stayed in the same location, I have to constantly be doing bigger and better things. So I need the personal challenge. And I would be like this if I was a plumber. I would be wanting to learn about the new wrench that just came out. Like I'm just wired like this. So I became a podcast consumer, I don't know, 10 plus years ago. And that's what I was always listening to. I mean, I shifted really from listening to music to strictly listening to podcasts. And I really felt like we needed to be in the space. And I was starting to see other broadcast companies carving out podcast niches and I really started pushing hard for us to get into podcasting. And so I started experimenting a little bit. And about three years ago, I said, look, I really would like to do this. And somebody at some point was like, okay, it's not going to cost us anything. She's basically doing it on her own time and we could sell it if we understood it. Um, And so they just said, yes, all I needed somebody to say was yes. And I started doing it. And so I bought the gear myself. The barrier of entry is pretty small. What I wanted help with was getting the actual interview into the magic of like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I hate that part of it. (laughs) Um, And so that's kind of what started it. And, um, you know, almost two and a half, three years later, I've done about 170 episodes, maybe. Yeah. And I put out an episode once a week. And I also create a television segment out of it as well. Mm -hmm. And it's fun. I really like it. And, you know, COVID taught us some new flexible ways to work. And we had a little studio that had been built at the station, not built. And by built, I mean, we put a microphone in an old office, (laughs) but we had it, we had a kind of a designated area. And because of COVID and our, our staffing spacing guidelines, that room ended up being just dismantled. And so I just started recording at home during the pandemic, during lockdown. And what I discovered after I had purchased a couple of nice lights and a decent microphone was that I actually really liked the autonomy of doing this from home. It changes the conversation when I don't, when people aren't walking in all the time and it changed the interactions with the guests as well, because I didn't have a newsy thing behind me. And so I've just continued doing it that way. So the way it typically works is we put out one episode a week. I record the episode. I do all of my recordings on zoom, record the episode. I send in three audio clips to my partner, Brian Lau, who's one of our overnight news editors. He puts it together And then um, one of our web staff, Hilda, she puts it up. She does the magic that puts it into, (laughs) puts it into your phone. And it's literally that simple. And I love it too, because it's called Dying to Ask. And I think one thing that stuck out to me when I started listening to your podcast was I just loved your style. And that's kind of what I tried to carry into this podcast is just making it just a casual conversation. Like, right. We know each other from CIM, but that's it. You know, but to be able to strike up that, you know, I guess relationship or partnership or even friendship kind of deal and just be able to have casual conversations and getting to just know people. I think everybody loves to tell their story. And so that's been the attraction for me. And I feel like you draw that out of people in a very, I don't know, it just feels very calm to me. I guess that's the best way for me to describe it. Is that accurate? Um, well, I don't know. You'd have to tell me. I don't, <laughs> well, I don't okay. feel, that's, I don't that's feel very assessment. calm, but that's nice. I mean, <laughs> no, no, I think you just have a very soothing way of like, sometimes like as a podcast host, 
when I'm interviewing, I'll get in my head too much. Like literally Deirdre to my right, right here. I have all these notes I've taken. I haven't looked at them once. And I think that's a good thing because that means that just lends to what I feel has just been a great conversation. But you know what I mean? You kind of get inside your head a little bit. I know exactly what you mean. And it's interesting. I do get a lot of calls or emails or messages from people who are just interested in getting into podcasting. A lot of broadcasters Mm -hmm. who would like to branch out a little bit. And the advice that I always give people is like, do your preparation, write out your questions, make your notes, and then never look at them. Because a good conversation is just listening. And a good conversation is listening to what somebody said and then asking what the person who hopefully will consume your podcast is asking, like talking out loud. It's the person who talks back to the TV or the radio. Um, that's what a good conversation is. So it's always good. I, I find like I go down the rabbit hole before I have a guest. I don't write questions out at all. I've only written questions maybe one time. Because I, I had to make sure that certain things got asked. And, and I'm talking about for something else. But even in my TV career, I've never written questions out. Okay. Because I've always felt like I needed to be prepared enough to sit down and just have a conversation. Right. And there's something very disarming. As soon as you lose eye contact with somebody that you're talking to. Exactly. As soon as you lose eye contact, there is a, a As soon subtle, as I'm looking over here. Mm. There's a subtle break in the conversation. Mm-hmm. You lose the flow. And right. when you lose the flow, you lose kind of that authentic, casual feel that you want. And it's okay to say, oh, I just lost my train of thought. In fact, everybody does that. It's totally okay. (laughs) But it's better to just kind of trust yourself and go with it. And and maybe that's because I've done like, you know, 17 million hours of broadcasting over the years (laughs) that I have that comfort level. But for me, that has always worked out the best. I love that. That's a great piece of advice. because And your your job is to make people forget that they're being interviewed. So exactly. I love it in a television interview when that – that is the high of doing an interview. When somebody finishes and, was, and says, um, you know, you made that so easy. Yeah. And I always tell them before I interview, my job is to make you look good. Yeah. My job is to make you look and sound good. And I, I can make anyone – good on TV as long as they listen to me. If they listen to what I say before we start, if they listen and they respond to the questions, I can make anyone look good. But if that. you go in and you say the the line you came up with that you were going to say, it always sounds stupid. Same yeah, thing like- on pod- and I think podcasting is the same. <laughs> well, it's interesting because let's just for fun, for giggles, okay? I just wrote down my bullet points. Let's see. The routine, okay. longevity in one city, Olympics- yeah. The idea behind starting a podcast, your love for running, which is what we're going to finish out with, being an entrepreneur, because I would kind of call, call you an entrepreneur, and then being a Sacramento resident. So yeah, I think we've hit all those, and yeah. I, I didn't even have to look. So you're you're right. I think those are just in place so that the preparation is there, but you don't feel like you have to go to. So <laughs> so on that, on that one that you'd written down about being an entrepreneur, there yeah. is a term. Have you ever heard of that term intrapreneur within yes. a company? Yes. That is how I would describe what I do. That's I love the spirit that. that I have it because yeah. I contractually am not allowed to like have a whole bunch of side hustles. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, I think that the looking within whatever business you're in for those opportunities or the ways you really would like to spend your work time and how could you contribute is a really valuable skill. So nobody asked me to do a podcast. Right. Um, the, no, it never occurred to anyone to add that onto my workload. Mm-hmm. 
but I wanted to do it. So it, you can create your own opportunity in places that lets you carve out how you spend your day sometimes. And that can be a real satisfying way to stay in a job, regardless of what that job is over an extended period of time. Very few bosses will ever say, no, I want you to do less. If you come at someone with a decent track record behind you and you say, I would like to contribute more and not cost you money, but maybe create an area where you can make money. Chances are, I mean, I'm not writing a self-help book, but chances are they're going to tell you yes. <laughs> Absolutely. So finish out with this, your love for running. I mean, yes. you, I mean, you've done some amazing things. That's how we met. Um, I love when you lead those panels. That's not how we met. You don't remember when we met. What are you talking about? Oh, no. okay. I think I know where you're going to go because it's going to have to be with your kids, right? It is. It is. I met you at a Steve Buzzard birthday party. That's right. Which it was, was yep. the fancy birthday party you could have when you were about six, seven years old. You know what? Now <laughs> that you just said that, I totally remember it to this day. It's funny that yeah. I remember those birthday parties, but yes, that is when we did first meet. Yeah. Cause you're one of your uh, sons. We met way back then because yeah. you were doing, you were like running the, I had never been to, I was new to the whole like <laughs> kid birthday party thing. And I didn't know any of the moms and my kid really wanted to go. Yep. And so I was self-conscious around these other moms and I look over and there's like this total like dance party going on and you've got these kids going crazy. <laughs> I'm like, who is this guy? What is he doing? doing and how does he have the ability oh to put up with this <laughs> i was fascinated and i ended up actually going over and hanging out with you and finding out all that's those right. other parts of your life yeah yeah so that's funny. right i do it because it was in a cul-de-sac and i forget exactly whose birthday it was but yeah i know exactly whose birthday it was and my kid is still friends with that kid are you and kidding that, me nice yeah i won't say their name just that's for fine. privacy yeah. but yeah yeah and i am very good friends with his mom now Oh my gosh. Isn't that funny? Well, see, there you mm -hmm. have it. Okay. So then, okay, CIM comes to mind. Ain't no party like a Steve Buzzard party. <laughs> you got that right. And I'm still doing those. My gosh, it's crazy. But you know I what? Know. It's I've, I've seen the adult version of those, and those are pretty fun too. <laughs> yes, they are. Because I think the last time we actually saw each other was the Jesuit high school dance. I think you were there as a. You, did you come in just to drop off your son, or were you there I... as a chaperone? I was a dance chaperone. You were a chaperone, which, by the way, probably pretty interesting itself. But I would oh. say the kids are pretty tame. Um, they were nothing like what we were back in the day. No, I can say that. no, no. <laughs> no, I think things have changed now with high school dances. Uh, it used to be, I always say as a DJ, those are the hardest events to do. They're the hardest to do because yeah. it's hard to please teenagers. And, oh, and you cannot, impossible. and here's the DJ tip. Do not make eye contact with teenagers when you're playing your music, because you'll get that one that'll say thumbs mm -hmm. down in here. And then it affects you. And you're like, Oh no, what do I do? I've gotten over yeah. that. I'm like, you know what? You are listening to what I'm playing and hopefully it'll be in line with what you like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not like a wedding where you play brick house and everybody's happy. Right. Exactly. Totally despite, different component. Despite the lyrics, everybody's yeah. happy. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's like low by flow rider, which I think is so yes. funny because everybody wants to stay away from the explicit. I'm like, have you read the lyrics yeah. to low? <laughs> I mean, isn't it funny? <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Love of running. I got off track. Love of running. Uh, man, you've done some big things and it's cool because you're really mixed in with the CIM of which not only do you help out with the expo that we do the days leading up to, but you've run in it, I think now 18 yeah. times. 
20-ish? Yeah, I'm, you I'm probably, not even sure. You Honestly, yeah. I don't even really know. So the running, real quick story, running mm-hmm. came about um, during news times. So it was back when I was working in Des Moines. I was supposed to coordinate a guest for a public affairs show. We didn't have a guest. And they said, call the Leukemia Society. They will come at the drop of a hat to talk about this team and training program that they have. So I called them not knowing what it was. And I record this interview and it was a marathon training program where you raised money for leukemia research. And on TV, they said, well, you should come. Um, will you join our team? And I said, yes, thinking no. And um, I was kind of on the hook. So I had to do it. So I did a marathon. And then I just never stopped. And when I moved out to California, especially, I mean, Northern California, is mm-hmm. it's the heart the heart of running and endurance running. And I just found it, it was a great way to get into a community. It's a great way to see a new place. And I just loved it. And then honestly, over the years, I've stayed with endurance sports because the Olympics took things up a notch. When you have an opportunity to see all these athletes up close and see what they do, you start to think that you can do some of those things. You can't. But you start to think that you can. <laughs> and so I would learn their little training tips and it, it gave me something to talk about with them. And I learned to use the training as a way also to manage stress, which there is a lot of. I like to think I don't have stress in my life, but we all do. And so for me, the running and the, the endurance sports and the, the races and everything became a really great way to stay healthy and to manage stress. So a run is the thing that gets rid of the hard news day, gets rid of the break news gets rid of the the stress of dealing with the pandemic the last couple of years. I mean, I was nothing but bad news there for <laughs> two and a half solid years. <laughs> nothing but bad news. So, um, um, uh, you know, for me, the running has kind of, it's kept me right. It's kept me upright. It's kept me going. And it's been a really important part of just staying healthy physically and mentally. I love it. A bucket, I would yeah. say a bucket list for me, but here's the issue, especially with the CIM, I announce. So I'm announcing Correct. the start line, the finish line. So it's interesting because there actually was a moment where it was going to be the Gold Country 5K up in El Dorado Hills. And they had decided, hey, Steve, uh, we're, you know, we're, we don't need you this time around. I actually, it was going to be my first 5K and then COVID hit. So it yeah. was right there. So I'm like, bummer, you know, cause I do love running. Um, I don't know if I could do a marathon. I think I can, but, mm-hmm. uh, I guess my excuse is, is that I'm on the microphone for the CIM. Yeah. So. But here's the deal. It's not the only one. I know. There are I other know. races. I know. So maybe you start small. In okay. fact, Baby I just did, I just did a podcast about how to become a consistent runner. You know what? I'm going to send you a link. Okay, please send it my way. You just did that a couple of episodes ago. It was just a cup. It was just a couple of weeks ago. One of those questions people ask me that question a lot. So I just did an episode about that. So okay, well, I'll take the inspiration. It's never too late. But I will say that it is a lot easier to run the marathon than it is to do what you do at the finish line of a marathon. Reading that many names is a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) You know what I love? My favorite question is. How do you read all those? How do you know all their names? I love it. I always want to keep it close to the vest, but then I can't help myself. I'm like, there's a computer screen in front of me. You're like, but I, have I have a brain for faces. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I study all these people, you know, right. and I've got them all down. My prep is good. My prep is good. But I always tell them there's levels. I'm like, if I say your first, 
I say your first, last name, and where you're from and your age, only for male, because I learned you never say a female's age. Mm. I understood that, okay? Mm -mm. That means you got you got carte blanche, okay? If I just say your first name, that means I'm going through a list of about 20 or 25. If I don't say your name, it's your fault that you're running in a pack. That's that's yeah. how I yeah I deem it. So I I've gotten your name you, though, a couple of times. I've you have, you yeah. have. And yeah. it's it is so, I mean, my name is on TV all morning long, but hearing my name at a marathon, it's to it. very huh. exciting. Yeah. It's very exciting. Like well, it's, and- it's so meaningful. And you should know that when, it, especially as the hours go along and mm-hmm. you know, you're tired, it's so meaningful. In fact, it's more meaningful to the people who are out there the longest because they oh, work Deirdre. the hardest. That, I, you just stole it right there. Those are my favorite are the end, that last hour of those people who have been out, out there forever to realize that I'm still at the finish line and I am going to, I'm going to announce you in a way that I probably can't announce others that are at the front end of the race. So it's, no, yeah, it's very can't. exciting. You and can, that's why and that's their Olympic moment. Yes. That's absolutely. their, that's in their yep. life. That's their Olympic moment. And yep. it's a big, big deal. <sighs> Deirdre, <sighs> this has been amazing. This was over and beyond what oh, I thought well, it would thank be. Thank you. I'm yeah. so glad we finally got to connect. Yes. I appreciate your patience. Absolutely. <laughs> this was a lot of fun for me too. Absolutely. Okay. Well, there you have it. She is Deirdre Fitzpatrick, KCRA Channel 3. Check her out in the mornings, weekdays. She's here in Sacramento, has stayed in Sacramento, and we are so glad that she is here. She is definitely a Sacramento treasure. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, an installment, another one of Heavy Metal Thunder. Today, we look at one of my favorites, Van Halen's No way! 150 yes. <laughs> We're going Van Hagar, though, Deirdre, so, you know. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys for joining us. We'll be back right after this. Well, there you have it, Deirdre Fitzpatrick. Yes, got her in, and it was a great conversation. And she shared so many great nuggets of wisdom in terms of kind of that persistence and the grind of being a broadcaster. But really, you could take those values and those qualities and apply it to anything that you do in life. So I'm very thankful for Deirdre and her time that she was able to give us here on ETB. Want to thank our sponsors, R5 Stitch and Print, Pit Boss Jerky, Little Will Swim School, and Matt, the Mortgage Guy, R5 Stitch in print. We actually, with our sponsors, we tell their story in one of our episodes. So Troy Rousey, you can find his episode in episode number 25. Joe Green of Pit Boss Jerky in episode 26. Anya Hall of Little Well Swim School in episode six. And Matt Gouget, who is known as Matt the Mortgage Guy in episode 28. Here is their information. Matt the Mortgage Guy, they specialize in home loans, refinances, mtmg.com. Little Whale Swim School, the premier swim school in Sacramento. You can find them at littlewellswim.com. Their location is 4106 El Camino Avenue. I encourage you to check it out. And Pit Boss Jerky, to order the greatest beef jerky I believe that exists, Get on the order board at 916-769-6807. 13 flavors to choose from. Joe Green is on the other end of that line. He will help you out. And we've got a flavor named right after this podcast. Yes, it's called Experience the Buzz. And it's good. So you got to try it out. And then finally, Troy Rousey, who was featured in episode 25. They can be found at r5print.com. They specialize in screen printing 
and embroidery. All right, so now we turn the page and go to our segment that we have featured on three other occasions. This is installment number four. Coming your way is Van Halen's 5150. Enjoy. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss an episode of Experience the Buzz by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. It means everything. Now, back to the show. Heavy Metal Thunder! That's right, installment number four. Once again, I want to thank Deirdre Fitzpatrick. Great, great conversation. And I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And yes, I got her within the top 100 because she truly has been the inspiration for me getting into the podcast world. So once again, thank you, Deirdre, for being on the program. But it is now time for Heavy Metal Thunder. Uh, Let's go ahead and look at what we've looked at so far. We kicked it off with Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast, my very first metal album that I purchased. That was followed by, a. we did a two-banger. We did Nirvana's Nevermind and Metallica's And Justice for All. And today, Van Halen's 5150. That's right. It truly is probably my ultimate album. They are the first true band that I loved and loved for a long time. And they are part of my progression in my love for heavy metal. But man, Van Halen and I'm the Sammy Hagar guy. Okay, so you have to remember with music, you come in at different points. I didn't come in with David Lee Roth. I came in right in at 1984, which was the final album with David Lee Roth, never got to see them in concert with DLR, but did get to see him with Sammy Hagar. And I was truly excited. It's hard to believe one fun fact is that when they were making the transition, Van Halen, they actually had, uh, let's see, they had Eric Martin of Mr. Big try out and Patty Smythe of the pretenders i mean that's pretty amazing to think that they those two could have possibly been in van halen glad it didn't work out i love sammy hagar because to me standing hampton i can't try 55 uh you know you've got just great songs from sammy hagar the red rocker and now he's a part of van halen now a lot of people would call it van hagar but alex and eddie were having none of that they remain van halen Nine song set. You know what I'm going to say about that. I love any album that's under 10 songs. 43 minutes, 11 seconds. Released on March 24th, 1986. I was a junior in high school. It was right before summertime. And it was good, good stuff. Of course, the characters. You got Eddie Van Halen, the greatest guitarist. Yes, passed away in 2020. But to me, in my mind, Eddie Van Halen, those striped guitars. Red, white, and black. And then he had black and yellow. Oh, just loved it. Or the overalls. I almost tried to purchase some of those, but that didn't happen. Alex Van Halen, great drummer. Hard to believe he's going to be 70 years old coming up this year. Of course, the bassist, Michael Anthony. Uh, Most notable for him was he had a bass that was in the shape of a Jack Daniels uh, bottle, which I thought was pretty cool. But then there's Sammy Hagar. And what was different about Sammy Hagar is that David Lee Roth was a great front man. Sammy was that, but he was also a great guitarist. So if you remember... In 1984, the last album with David Lee Roth, all of a sudden, Eddie Van Halen was playing the synthesizer. And everybody was like, wow, what's going on here, right? Well, when he took that over to 5150, that allowed Sammy Hagar to then kind of 
go in with the guitar. He could play the synthesizer. Good stuff. Now, let's look at the tracks because the tracks are great. I always talk about position of tracks. Number one was good enough. I thought, wow, what a great song to kick off the Van Hagar era. Good Enough is just a great, great tune. It is definitely in my top three. Uh, that was followed by Why Can't This Be Love, Get Up, which is a great fast song, Dreams. So Why Can't This Be Love and Dreams, slower songs, not anything that we were used to coming from Van Halen. One of my favorites, Summer Nights, uh, followed by Best of Both Worlds, Love Walks In, the title track, 5150, and Inside. So 5150, as you know, is a police term for the mentally unstable. And I always thought that was funny. I love the irony that took place with uh, musicians. You know, I've talked about, you know, Mastodon and my favorite song being Blood and Thunder. And the opening line is, you know, I think someone is trying to kill me when really, when you look at the lyrics, it's about the uh, novel Moby Dick. Same thing here, 5150. It's like, oh, what's going on here? Are they unstable? No, it's just a term used for mentally unstable people. And it was the name of Eddie Van Halen's recording studio. And I have to admit, 5150 was part of my passwords for many, many years until uh, as of a couple years ago. So don't try to use that on any passwords that I possibly have. Now, my top three, number one, I'm going with Summer Nights. Summer Nights, to me, it was just the perfect summer song. And when this was released, it was right before summer. Made total sense. That was followed by Dreams. I love Dreams. Great song. Sammy Hagar says it's his favorite off the album. And then in a tie for third, Good Enough, which is a great fast song. And of course, opens up this album and the new era. And Why Can't This Be Love? So um, here is my experience that I want to share with you before I give this a rating. Is that I had an opportunity to see Van Halen with Sammy Hagar. But how it happened was pretty cool. Ended up going to the show on a whim. That's right. They were playing the rest of their U.S. tour at the Cow Palace in 1986. They were there from October 31st to November 3rd. Now, which day I went, I know it wasn't the end and I know it wasn't Halloween. So it had to be November 1st or 2nd. But on a whim, actually went to the show with one of my teachers at Christian Brothers, my good friend, Kevin McGovern. Haven't seen him in years, but man, you talk about a great memory. We did not have tickets, but we went for it. And when we got to the Cow Palace and went in to buy the ticket, there was literally a stack like this that was left. We got in the show. Who opened up on that night? Are you ready for this? Bachman Turner Overdrive. That's right, the old classic band with... Um, Taking Care of Business, yeah, that's their number one song, only song that I can think of. I think there were a couple of others, but BTO, they were there. I didn't care about them. Bring on Van Halen, and man, they opened up with You Really Got Me. There's only one way to rock. They had Panama, I Can't Drive 55, Ain't Talking About Love, all the tracks from 5150, and then on the encore came out with Why Can't This Be Love, and then finished up with Led Zeppelin's uh, tune, Rock and Roll. So good, good stuff, and it was such a great memory, and I thank Mr. McGovern for that. I've thanked him over the years for just that moment because it was the only time that I ended up seeing Van Halen on their own. Would get to see them a little bit later on at Monsters of Rock. They were the headliner, and that was when OU812 came out. Then you had the follow-up album to that, which was Four Unlawful Carnage. By the way, take the letters of Four Unlawful Carnal 
knowledge. Yeah, a little play on words there for Van Halen and then their final album, Balance. Now, anything after that, I am not going to acknowledge because yes, there is Van Halen 3 that came out. But if you remember, that's when Sammy Hagar was no longer the lead man. It was Gary Sharon. Man, oh boy, that was just absolutely awful. Now, I want to finish up with some fun facts and then I'll give you a rating. Man, so glad we can cover this one. This was a good one. But This was the first Van Halen album that actually did not feature an instrumental, which I thought was pretty interesting. Of course, we all think of Eruption, uh, the classic Van Halen. Uh, The man on the cover of the 5150 album is Rick Valenti. I don't know why you would want to know this, but he was a former bodybuilder and the host of ESPN's Body Shaping. Just think about giving that call. Hey, do you want to pose as the, you know, Atlas on the cover of the Van Halen album featuring Sam Hagar. I would say yes to that. Uh, the iconic VH logo. Now, listen, during high school, I loved doing this logo. It Straight lines. Everything was beautiful, symmetric. I, I can't tell you how many times I drew this logo. But do you know what the difference was when Sammy Hagar came on board? Instead of straight lines for the V and the H that would jut out left and right, they actually went circular. Ah, pretty good. I actually didn't know that until I looked it up on the internet. So thank you, internet. Uh, I mentioned Sammy's favorite song was Dreams. Van Halen's, this was their first number one record. Now, they probably would have got it with 1984, which peaked at number two. But guess who they were behind? Yeah, MJ, Michael Jackson's Thriller. Hard to beat that out. I think MJ's Thriller is probably the best of all time. Uh, So they were at number two. But they did get to number one with 51 50. And so there you have it. And then the last fact, you may know this, Eddie Van Halen was married to Valerie Bertinelli uh, and he passed away in 2020. And now he's got his son, Wolfgang. They still play together. Although now Michael Anthony plays with Sammy Hagar with Sammy Hagar and the circle. So, you know, things have changed, but the music is tremendous. The one thing I loved about Van Halen with Sammy Hagar was their energy. And that came out in that show in Cow Palace. Remember they put out that uh, there was a video called Live Without a Net. I watched that thing over and over and over and over again. So what's my rating? I'm going to give it a 9.2. That's right, because I talk about albums being great top to bottom. This one definitely fits the bill. I loved every piece of it from the first song that we mentioned good enough to number nine inside. So there you have it. That is Heavy Metal Thunder. That's all I got for now. Talk to you next time. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for joining Steve this week on Experience the Buzz. Steve would love to hear from you. Leave a review or contact Steve directly with any questions at scbuzzard at gmail.com. To see the other adventures of Steve Buzzard, be sure to visit buzzardball.com.